Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. It's my extreme pleasure to uh, interview Dr. Nora Tarot this morning. She is the lead author on a recent publication in hepatology, the uh, March issue entitled Sexual Transmission of Hepatitis C Virus Among Monogamous Heterosexual Couples, the Hepatitis C Partner Study. So thank you for joining me this morning, Nora. I know it's early your time, but uh, we're glad to have you on board for this brief podcast. I wanted to uh, just just set the stage for the uh, the listener. This study was a cross-sectional study looking at trying to tease out some of the data on what the prevalence and the incidence is for sexual transmission of hepatitis C among heterosexual monogamous couples. And the major objectives of the study, just pulling that from the paper, were to quantify the risk for sexual transmission of hepatitis C from chronically infected subjects to their long-term heterosexual partners, and number two, identify specific sexual practices associated with that risk. What was the, the main reason for, for doing this study, Nora? Well, first of all, Steve, thanks for inviting me to talk with you this morning, and I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to review our study and discuss some of its implications. The genesis of this study really was at a time where there was information about sex as a potential mode of transmission of hepatitis C, but where there was variable information about what that risk was. And we conceived of this study as really focusing on trying to obtain a quantifiable estimate of what that risk was and to drill down a little bit more towards whether there were specific sexual practices that might be warranting a change in, you know, the message about prevention of transmission. So, for example, we were interested in were there specific sexual practices for which we would want to be making recommendations about use of condoms or other modifications in practice. So it was really to get more specific information for couples. And I will say at the onset that we specifically set out to study monogamous kind of longer-term partnerships. We recognize that there that doesn't account for all of the types of sexual relationships that, that exist, but we were trying to really look at we thought what was the most prevalent partnerships in the population of chronically infected individuals. And so this study very specifically sought couples that were in longer-term relationships. We, we specifically sought couples that were in monogamous relationships. And what was also specific to this study is we also, we also quantified sexual practices or utilized a specific means to capture what was being done in terms of sexual practices and what was being used in terms of barrier methods for transmission, again, to try to provide ultimately better information to couples about about the risk and things that might impact on that risk. Absolutely, and that's a question that we all ask when we're seeing our patients or we're talking to graduate medical education trainees, whether it be a resident or a med student or a fellow. These are important questions that, that are often asked. Interestingly, you also collected data, and this is incredibly important, on non-sexual household exposures like uh, nail grooming tools, razors, toothbrushes, questions that patients will often ask us in clinical practice. So that was very informative. While we're on the subject of your study population and methods, just to hit on a couple more points, you're, you had a minimum of 36 months for 
this heterosexual relationship to occur. And they had to, interestingly, you collected data that they had to have a minimum of three sexual contacts in the preceding six months. And we can get to, to that in your characteristics in Table 1. Were there other specific aspects of the methods or your sample size estimate that you would like to mention that maybe aren't, uh, that you would want to just kind of reiterate from the paper that, that you think the reader would find important or interesting to know? Well, I think the other specific aspect of the study inclusion criteria were that we did not, we specifically asked couples about injection drug use practices. And this is, a, I think, a really important aspect of why the study may be different from others that were previously published. Because we recognize that injection drug use or sharing of injection drug use or of drug paraphernalia is a very effective way to transmit hepatitis C, and we were concerned that couples, if they were sharing needles or paraphernalia for injecting drugs, that that would be a much more efficient way for the couple to have transmitted the virus between themselves, between the partners, and that if, if we had a lot of couples in which both were injection drug users or where they potentially had shared needles or equipment, that would be very difficult to discern whether sex was contributing to transmission in that setting. So what we did in the study is we actually pre-screened all of the individuals who qualified, meaning they met their criteria in terms of being in a monogamous relationship, heterosexual relationship for at least 36 months and were having sex, which we you know, said at a minimum of three contacts in the prior six months. But we also asked them about injection drug using practices, not current, it could be current or historical. And if both partners reported a history of injection drug use, then that couple was excluded. Now, it didn't lead to a lot of exclusions in the study, but I think it's a very important aspect of, of really what we did in the study to try to allow sex as a mode of transmission to be studied. And by doing so, what we did was we tried to eliminate kind of common modes of HCV acquisition that would overwhelm, really, our ability to find another mode of transmission like sex. So that's actually a very, I think, unique aspect of the study is that if both partners reported injection drug use, current or past, that couple was not included in the study. Absolutely. I think that's definitely unique and very important and a wonderful insight into you guys when you designed the study to make that uh, point very clear. And just looking at the results, ultimately you had 500 patients or couples were enrolled and completed all the study requirements. The majority tended to be non-Hispanic white. They were quite educated. They were employed. Most were born in the U.S. Your median duration for the relationship was 15 years. Were there some surprising data on the patient characteristics or some things that you were, uh, that kind of you weren't expecting when you looked at the data? Well, I, I think, you know, one could argue that we're not, we do not have a, a population that's representative of the population of HCV-infected individuals, meaning that we didn't capture the racial, ethnic diversity of the United States and a representation of those racial ethnic groups, you know, that are infected by HCV. So, so that is partly, I think, was surprising to us. I think we certainly, in, in the Bay Area, this was largely a, a it was a study conducted in Northern California, and we certainly have all racial ethnic groups represented in the Bay Area, but there were some refusals in terms of study participation. There was also the other kind of common reason why couples didn't qualify was due to a lack of sexual activity. Truly a third of the ineligible couples 
were excluded because they were in partnerships, but they weren't sexually active. So, you know, those various exclusion criteria may have resulted in some of the characteristics of our patient population. I also think that there was a certain amount of, you know, people who were interested in this topic, comfortable with kind of discussing sex and sex practices may have been also a factor. And that is reflected in us having, you know, a a group of individuals who were, I think, fairly educated, verbal, I think fairly comfortable in terms of discussing this. Perhaps that had some role in who participated in the study. I think we wanted to have a, a greater kind of representation of the broad spectrum of HCV-infected individuals, and I, I think that that would have been the one uh, finding that was a bit surprising to us in terms of who the final study population was. But otherwise, I think who participated was not otherwise unexpected. And, you know, we do have, in terms of age and, and the proportion that were male that were the index cases, and in terms of other aspects related to their risk factor profiles for HCV, I think those were fairly typical and expected for an HCV population in the U.S. Absolutely. I, you know, the, the, your mean age or, or median age was 49, and I did find it a little interesting that 31, 32% of the hepatitis C positive index subjects actually had blood transfusions prior to 1992. I, I guess I typically have thought of these individuals as being older Maybe uh, your, you know, your bypass surgery patients, you know, the 60s, 70s, that sort of thing. But it was a little surprising to me that given the median age, there was a fully a third of the patients uh, documented uh, blood transfusions as, as a potential etiology for that. Right, meaning you were, you were expecting a greater proportion that might have had injection drug use or other percutaneous exposures. Right. So, you know, over 50% had injection drug use as their risk factor. So that, I think, is kind of consistent with what we recognize. And if you look at information about a newly acquired HCV infection, remember that one of the criteria for our study was that if both individuals in the partnership were inject- had used injection drugs in the past that were excluded. So that may have led to a lower proportion of our participants that, that had injection drug use as a risk factor. For the listener who maybe didn't read the paper, let's uh, not keep them in suspense. What what were the top-line results from your study? So in the 500 patients that we evaluated, 20 of the partners were found to be anti-HCV positive. But among those 20 individuals, we found that there was only 13 of them that were HCV RNA positive, meaning that we could confirm that they had persistent viremia. And and of those that we could then further go on to do sequencing of the virus to evaluate for whether the the partners had a related virus that would be consistent with sexual transmission, only three of the 20 partners had a, a virus that was related to their partner and would be consistent with sex as a mode for uh, transmission. And so in the end, we concluded that the overall prevalence of HCV infection among the partners that we could attribute to sexual transmission was 0.6%. Now, if we then went on and said, well, the patients that were HCV RNA negative that we couldn't evaluate for relatedness of virus, if we assume that all of those individuals also were potentially sexually transmitted at maximum, our prevalence was 1.2%, which is very low. And we then went on to kind of, again, to try to get more quantitative information for both providers and for patients. 
because we had characterized the duration of the relationships and we had characterized the number of sexual contacts over the relationship, we could then also calculate the incidence rates for the HCV infection and the incidence or the risk per sexual contact. And I think that's kind of the more important messages for patients because I think it is a very reassuring message. So again, if we if we provide those data based upon our numbers of positive partners and the ones that had related viruses, we can estimate that the actual incidence of infection is only at 3.6 per 10,000 person years or to translate that into sexual contacts, it's about 1 in 190 to 1 in 380,000 contacts. So the message is one in which which says that if sexual transmission as as a mode of acquiring HCV or or having HCV in a a partner is extremely rare and I think is a reassuring message for our, our monogamous heterosexual couples. Absolutely, definitely reassuring. And then the other important finding was you did not identify any practices that you could say would increase a couple's risk of transmission. That is correct. But here is, I think, gets to one of the potential limitations of the study, and that is if you have a very few number of cases of transmission, your ability to discern uh, specific practices as risk factors, you know, diminishes. So if we'd had, you know, hundreds of cases of potential sexual transmission, then we would have been in a position, I think, to evaluate with greater robustness the potential sexual practices, vaginal intercourse versus anal intercourse, for example. But we had a relatively number, limited number of cases of right. sexual transmission, of potential sexual transmission, and therefore our our power to be able to do that was was limited. But we didn't see any, you know, statistically significant effects that were evident in the population that we studied. Okay. Well, there is there any any other conclusions you would like to make? Uh, you know, that we could share with the audience before we end the podcast? Well, I do think that the other message is that this is a a study that is applicable to the heterosexual population, an HIV-uninfected population. Many of the individuals in whom I have contacted me after the study was published have commented that, well, are these results applicable to the HIV-infected population? Is this applicable to men who have sex with men? And the answer is no. This is a study that really is looking at sexual practices in an HIV-uninfected patient population, and it's looking at heterosexual partnerships and monogamous heterosexual partnerships. So I think while you could say that's a limitation because it's only restricted to that patient population, it really does represent the most common kind of demographic in, in the U.S. and I think is a message that's going to be very reassuring for a large number of infected individuals. But it is one in which I think we have to acknowledge that it's not applicable to every sexual partnership and, and it certainly is not applicable to the setting of HIV where the HIV infection itself may may alter that that risk. But for the HIV uninfected heterosexual partnership, this is a, a message I think would be very helpful in terms of counseling those patients. And as you said from the onset, Steve, I think this is really very applicable currently where we're, you know, really embarking upon thinking about doing more widespread screening of baby boomers, for example, and in which we're going to identify many newly infected individuals and many of them will have been in, in long-term partnerships, and I think this information will be very relevant to those initial counseling sessions with patients 
and advising them about kind of what that risk is and helping them, I think, in terms of understanding, you know, discussions in terms of, you know, future partnerships as well. Absolutely. I think this was a fabulous study that answers, a, it gives us more information to provide our patients in reference to uh, transmission, sexual transmission risk, which always seems to come up and it's very important. Nora, it's an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much for for sharing uh, more of the story with us in, re- in relation to this paper. Look forward to uh, to more studies that you have being published so that we can have another discussion at another date. I know you got a busy day ahead of you, so thanks so much. Thanks so much, Steve. I, it was really a pleasure. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you this morning. Okay, have a great we'll day, have okay? A, have an awesome day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.